Paulo Freire is one of the most widely read and studied educational thinkers of our time. His seminal works, including Pedagogy of the Oppressed, sparked the global social and philosophical movement of critical pedagogy, and his ideas about the close ties between education and social justice and politics are as relevant today as they ever were. In part two of this episode, Walter Omar Cohan discusses his book, Paulo Freire, A Philosophical Biography, as well as the relationship between education and politics more broadly. He contextualizes Freire's work within the past and current political terrain in Brazil and encourages educators to put themselves and their educational work into question by highlighting some of Freire's lesser-known thoughts on time. Take a listen. thinker in an educator like, like Freire, which makes such a careful use of language, each translation brings a new Freire. And, and this is also the case of our book, my book, that we have to, to translate it now into English in Bloomsbury. And as I also know English, not perfect, as you might realize, but as I, I can understand and read in English, and the translator was a very were two very and deep colleagues, Jason Wozniak and Sam Rocha, like we work collectively and we discuss a lot how to translate many expressions, either from Freire and or either from myself, because I also work a lot with language and I also give a lot of importance to word. And for example, from the title, the title itself of my book in Portuguese is a little different from the title in English. In Portuguese, a literary translation of the title of the book would be Paulo Freire More Than Ever. And a philosophical biography is a subtitle in Portuguese and tends to be in the title in English. And we discuss a lot to include or not more than ever or more than never, it came in, in some case. And the English committee decided not to include it, that it would be clearer and more than ever might bring some confusion to the reader. You know how it's difficult to translate because in the book, time is, is at the core of the book. So if you could ask me, which is the main theme that you work with Freire? I could say that time, I could say the time of education, which is the time of education. And more than never, more than ever, it's very interesting because they introduce two very different kinds of times. More than never is any time because never is no time, zero time. So one second is more than never, one hour, one day, any time is more than never. But what is the time of more than ever? Seems to be an impossible time. Because ever is all the time. So what time can be more than ever? Well, I think that this is the time of education, a time that seems impossible, but is needed to dream or to hope in education. And this is, I think, a distinction that Paulo Freire offers, that education, there's one time of education, that one that has to do with the educational institutions, the time of the clock, the time of the calendar, 
the time of the programs, of the syllabus, of the educational systems. But I think that he also helps us think that if you stay in this time, you really do not educate anyone. That real, deep, true education has to do with offering another time, which seems to be impossible, like more than ever, but turns to be the time education, real education takes place. The time of utopia, the times of dreams, the times of revolution, the times of another world. Yeah, I am also really fascinated by the idea, the sort of philosophy behind translating works. And you bring up a good point that your book, which is already being translated from Portuguese to English and to other languages, is is working on a figure who has been so so widely translated. <laughs> so I think there's there's a sort of double possibility of being lost in translation and I think it's really poetic to think about and, and very philosophical to think about because as you were just talking about with the phrase more than ever, like uh, I think as an English speaker, I really relate to that phrase a little bit differently from you. And it's really interesting to think about how people can find different, can resonate differently mm-hmm. and relate differently to different concepts of time, even through through language. I don't know, I could probably talk about this for a lot and I, d- I don't want to get into the weeds, but... Was there some kind of example you had that you came across reading Freire in English that you thought was really so different from from your experience reading him in Portuguese? Oh, yeah. There's one very concrete that comes to my mind now that that is the end of the pedagogy of the oppressed. I still don't know why. This is something I, I'm trying to, to get the reason. But the last paragraph of the pedagogy of the oppressed in Portuguese, the original edition, let's say, it's not included in the English edition as last paragraph. So that, that's one thing that doesn't have to do strictly with translation, but it's connected. If you read the English edition of the Pedagogy of the Oppressed, there's one paragraph missing, the very last paragraph. But this paragraph is included in the English edition in the preface of Paulo Freire. So it is included in a sense, but not like deplaced. It's not as the end of the book but in the preface, which is a big difference because it makes the book end in a very different way. And also the translation, the last, the very, very last paragraph, has two main differences. In the Portuguese edition, a literary transla- translation could be, if nothing remains from these pages, at least the faith in a world where it is less difficult to love. And in the English edition, the first part was cut, if nothing remains of these pages, and it only says of these pages. And the part where Paulo Freire says, a world where it's less difficult to love, is translated as a world where it is easier to love, which in a sense is a synonym, but it's not at all the same. It's very difficult for Paulo Freire to say, a world where it is less difficult to love than a world where it is easier to love. Of course, it's a very complex issue. And in, in my book, love is a chapter. I think you're right that they're synonyms to say something's easier or more less di- or less difficult. But there's, I think there's a very important distinction there. It seems to me that saying something is more difficult, like it's more difficult to love is actually is a much more critical way of 
exactly. of saying something and saying something is, is easier feels more passive. So it's almost like they're, they're kind of blunting his critiques in English. At least that's my impression. Exactly. Um, exactly. And also the fact that if you say that a world where it is more difficult, you are saying indirectly that it's really very hard, very difficult to love in this world we are, we are living. And when you say that it's easier, you are saying something also very difficult in terms of love. And love may be one of those things that is never easy to really love. So it's very, very, very different to say, even they are synonyms, it's very, very different to say less difficult than to say easier. And, and in this case, it's, it's, I could say it's a little far from Freire to say that love is easier. So this is just an example. And it's full of these examples because when we did the translation of the book to English, we take the words into <laughs> to make it less difficult for the reader to read it, to include all the references of the books published in English, not like in the in my book in Portuguese, of course, they all the references are to the original Portuguese works of Freire. So we search where these references were and how were translated. And we discover lots of things, like like there are some books that have been, they have the title changed, or they ha they are published different, like two books together, or one book split in two, so all, all sorts of things. So it's it would be interesting to write another book on how Freire has been turned into English. Yeah, I mean, I would certainly read that book. I'm as <laughs> I think it's obvious. I uh, yeah, I'm very fascinated by this whole idea of how. Um, concepts and philosophies get translated across different cultural contexts. But so one of the things that you were talking about was writing a chapter that focuses on the philosophical idea of love. And the book itself is structured around five philosophical principles, one of them being love, the others being life, equality, errantry, and childhood. Could you explain why you felt that it felt those principles were so important in our understanding of Freire's work? Yes, sure, Rebecca. Well, in fact, this is connected to some other questions, previous questions you made, like why reinventing or how reinventing Freire? Because one of the reasons I chosen these words is that I tried to choose ideas or concepts that haven't been so stressed in Freire's work. For example, I could have chosen more easy, and it's funny that the word easy and difficult are coming a lot to our conversation, but I could, <laughs> could have chosen more easy, easier words like oppressed, like autonomy, like democracy, like freedom, like hope. But in a sense, this is part of the idea of offering a new Freire. So trying to work with words that are present in Freire, that, but that haven't been noticed or studied or written so much. More or less, this happened with the five concepts, but mainly I might give you the example of childhood, because childhood is very rarely connected to Freire. Early childhood educators in Brazil, of course, because in Brazil, all educators in a sense are connected with Freire, but in many, many, many countries where Freire is present, and, may, and also in the US, Freire is usually connected with adult education, with uh, rural education, with lifelong education. So very rarely you'll find 
early childhood education connected with Freire. I found out that Freire have a, has a very deep connection with childhood. Very, that childhood is a very important concept, fundamental concept in his work. So in, in a sense, it's funny that it hasn't been noticed before. But in what, in what sense? It is true that apparently Freire hasn't devoted too much to education of the chronological children, so to early childhood, to childhood as a stage of life. But at the same time, there are lots of testimonies where Freire considered childhood not as a stage of life, but as a way of life, as a dimension of an educational experience that is fundamental and very needed for educators of all ages to keep alive if they want to educate people of any age. Paulo Freire, for example, among other prizes and awards and rewards, he received lots of prizes and awards from institutions of every country and all, all around the world. One of the awards he received is very funny. In Italy, when he was 68, almost 69 years old, he received the award of permanent child. Being 69, the title of the award in a communal library in, in Italy, in the region of Toscana, was permanent child. And this is very important because, because it's also connected to the question of time we were discussing before. Permanent child means that Freddy has a very special timing of childhood. The childhood for him was not a stage, was not something he passed, but something that he need to feed, he need to conserve, to, to care to listen and at all time, permanent. He couldn't live without being a child. And this is a nice metaphor for an educator. I think it's very frightening to think that an educator, in a sense, needs to be a permanent child in the sense of to live the time of a child, the time of play, the time of joy, a time that is very different to the chronological time of the institutions. It is a time that do not passes. When a child plays, it seems that it's only present. There's no future, no, no past. And in the educational institutions, unfortunately, now we have more and more future and more and more past and less present. So this is philosophical, but it's also political. So these five concepts for me, they are philosophical and political because when you consider childhood as we consider with Freire in this way, it opens up a new relationship to childhood in education. So educators do not think so much that they need to form childhood, to educate childhood, to turn the childhood into a different adult, but they begin to listen to the voice of childhood, to take care of childhood, to be in childhood. And this opens a new politic also of education. Yeah. I mean, I think it's so funny. You're right. It's a kind of a funny title, though, being called a permanent child. It sort of reminds me of like Peter Pan or something. But, yeah. <laughs> um, but it also reminds me of, of what we were just talking about earlier in this conversation, the idea of being lost. Because when you were talking about that, I immediately had this image in my head of like being in a forest and the sort of dynamic, wondrous relationship to knowledge, right? That it's it's 
sort of joy unknowing that you were talking about. And I do feel like there's this, when you get older, just conventionally speaking, there's this sort of flattening of knowledge, this deadening, this insistence on revealing everything, revealing the truth of everything. And I think it almost leaves us a little disenchanted. And I don't know, I, I, I really think therefore it's quite radical to relate to knowledge and truth that way um, yeah to treat it as this this beautiful unknown thing that you might not ever be able to fully unlock but like you're okay with that yeah exactly yeah and the, the image of the forest is a very nice image for education because I, I also share with you the idea that the time is more the time of the forest than the time of the city the time of education the time of learning the time of teaching it's also about because in on nature, we have this cycle time. We have the time of the seasons that repeats again and again. So it's like a circle. A circle, and if you remember, in a circle, every point could be the beginning or the end of the circle. But if one point is the beginning, it will also be the end of the circle. So I think this is more close to the time of thinking of education, of questioning, that the linear time we have in the cities and in the schools where you begin at one point and you have to end very far from it. And the more far you end, the better because you have, you have gone more distance. This does not happen in the forest and nature. And I think that it's, it's a very inspiring figure. I haven't thought about it before, but I think it's a very inspiring figure for thinking the time of education. We have this time, at least these two times, the times of the institutional educations, of schools, of systems, which is a line, which is chronos, which is past and future, and which is obsessed to prepare children to the future. But in nature and in the forest, times moves differently. And I think it's more close to a philosophical pedagogy of the question. Well, I'm glad that you think of it that way I, or that you like that because, yeah, I guess it's just getting at larger questions of me, for me about different larger powers at B, like this idea of like <laughs> capitalism and modernity and the insistence on, on rationality. And I mean, I know I'm throwing around a lot of, of terminology here, but this idea, this, this sort of, this attitude about education of needing to extract things the way that we extract everything under capitalism versus this more enchanted, well, kind of, yeah, like, yeah, this sort of enchanted relationship to education and, I guess what I'm trying to get at is, we've talked about this a little bit already, but this sort of relationship between how we learn and how we feel about learning and the sort of politics that come with that more broadly. Do you see that sort of relationship between education and politics uh, changing? Yeah, I think, well, that's another, it's good that you have larger and larger questions. That's another symptom that our interview is going well. And I hope that the listeners are also having larger and larger questions as soon as we, as we talk. Because I think it's all about that. And I think it's, uh, it's very appropriate. You bring in capitalism and the extractive way and the way we are killing the earth, we are destroying the planet. Because I think it's about love and hate. It's about life and death. So I think that Paulo Freire, it's a figure 
that can make us realize how we are, in fact, destroying the planet and how we are forgetting that education is about life, it's about life, it's about listening to childhood, listening to the planet, and now exploding the planet. It's about listening and giving space for all sorts of life, for different species, that love is not also, not only a feeling, not only a personal feeling against for some for someone. So love is not just loving a person or loving an animal. Love, I think, is also a faith in the rebirth of the world, of the upcoming of a new world, that things not necessarily need to be the way they are, that they could be different. Love is like a faith in difference. It's like a faith in plurality. It's like a faith in multiple worlds and not just one. And I think that capitalism, as you said, in, in the end, is just the pretension of having one system, one closed system, where just one world is possible to be lived and it's just a consumer relationship to life and not an appreciative relationship, not a loving relationship to love. That's why also our hope, Freire's hope, my hope also is that after this book, we will live a world where it will be less difficult to love because it's very difficult to love in, in a capitalist world. I agree, but I'm wondering why you think it's difficult to love in a capitalist world. I could say that it's difficult to love in another sense that love is something different from consuming. Because it's a world that all the times foster a consumery relationship. I don't know if this word is good in English, but it's all the time about consuming, about exploding. So love enters under this logic of consumism. And I think that love has nothing to do with consuming. So that's why it's neither impossible, even impossible to love, because you can only love if you enter the world of love under a consumery logic. And if you enter love under a consumery logic, you destroy love. You are not loving anymore. You are consuming. Yeah, I think consuming is the right word because I think what you're getting at and what I also have been thinking about a lot is this idea of love and and hope and but particularly love as, as a conscious reciprocal act. It's about treating the two figures on both ends as as equal parties with equally legitimate needs and desires that need to be fulfilled. And I guess that looks different between two people versus people and the planet. But I think that the philosophy still applies in the same way that under a capitalist model, we think about how the planet's resources, how how we can exploit, not just exploit the planet's resources, but how we can exploit other people's resources. And it's all about, as you said, it's all about consumption. It's all about how it can serve us. And it's all very steeply self-absorbed. It's deeply corrosive to the planet and to, I mean, it, it literally kills people. It is killing people, be it in light of like the climate emergency, but also the various 
social crises that we're we're all under we're all experiencing right now. So I agree with you. I think we need to subvert that model and start thinking about a more egalitarian relationship and think about how how we can sustain ourselves by sustaining everybody else and this planet that we all inhabit. Yeah, if I can give you another example that I agree with you and that that can reinforce that. It's for example the pandemic in places where like Brazil the pandemic is treated under the supremacy of capitalist laws as an economic stuff, deaths are increasing, increasing every day. Yesterday, we have almost 3,000 deaths in Brazil. It's more than any time before in the pandemic. So this is a very simple but very concrete example that it's about life and death. And also, it's about time because the there's also a, a capitalistic time, which is the time of productivity, which is the time that you cannot lose time because, as they say, time is money. So it's a deprivation of time, of our, of human experience of time. While time, the time of education, is a time that has nothing to do with productivity and it's more close to losing time. I don't know if you know that the word school which is a Greek word in its origin, schole. Schole in Greek means free time. Free time. I repeat it because it's unbelievable. So it means that school was born not as a place to learn, but as a place to lose time. Because even in pre-capitalistic societies, there was this sense that the social time is a time of productivity, of results. And we need to create conditions for a different time where we can have another relationship, a losing relationship to time, where it's important, it's needed to lose time because this is the time, again, of play. It's a time of thinking, the time of questioning, and the time of love. If you say to the person you love, I have 10 minutes to do love with you, it's a kind of, I would say, unpolite. I mean, you need to forget the time of the clock to love. Love has no chronological time because you only can love in the present. As a child, can only play in the present. And I think, inspired by Paulo Freire, that is also the time of education. You can only educate in the present. You cannot educate looking at the watch, at the clock, or looking at the calendar. You need to be present in the present. This is a requirement of love, of education, of play. And this is an obstacle for capitalism because you cannot lose time. Time is money. I love that. I love that line that you cannot look at the clock to love. That's. I feel like it takes on so many different meanings and so many different thoughts just came to my mind. And I think you're right that... It's even more exacerbated under the pandemic in some ways because what I immediately started thinking about when you were talking about this idea of school and its derivation actually meaning free time is that for my friends and colleagues that have young children that are now learning over Zoom, it just seems like because they're afraid that because of this whole idea of what you're saying, that they're afraid that people are not going to be productive at home, right? They still insist on 
keeping kids watching a computer for eight hours to make sure that they can like just tick it off at the end of the day that they're quote unquote being productive and they still insist on giving kids homework even though Mm -hmm. which is so sad to me because I feel like well we're all we all feel like time has been stolen from us under lockdown and so for them to even double down on that by trying to like replicate that already problematic model of insisting that our young ones kind of produce something instead of relate to the world and, and and yeah I don't know have an appropriate amount of wonder to learning as we've been talking about it just it's really sad to me mm-hmm. yeah it is it is because it is sad at any age but it's it looks more sad with children because it seems to be the the age of play and the age of present and you know in, in a sense education is about stealing or could be practice as the stealing of the time of childhood. And so it's, it's like the other way around. I mean, it's like, that's what, what I was trying to say when speaking about listening to childhood, care, taking care of childhood, keeping our childhood alive. It's like if we are doing exactly the opposite of what might be done in terms of a more loving and childlike world. So to keep the, chi- the time of ch- joy, of love, of friendship, of art, because it's also the time of creation. An artist also cannot create looking at the watch, at the clock. You cannot say to an artist, oh, you have one hour to paint this. It paralyzes. There's no way. So um, I think it's nice that these things emerge because we can... Both we and and our listeners, we might question what kind of education we are practicing. Not just in the school, but in our jobs. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, thinking about looking at the clock myself. (laughs) What does that look like when I'm literally working right now? But I I do think it's obviously really difficult, as, as Freire was talking about, it's difficult to love, it's difficult to learn under these, these circumstances, but one could hope that because love is a conscious act, we can actively resist these models and try to resist looking at the clock. Exactly. Um, yeah, exactly. And that's, that's interesting that now that you say that, because it's bring us to our previous question about the political, the politicity of education and the political task of education. So maybe it's a, it's a task of resistance. Maybe the educator had to resist all these uh, tendencies all these forces that suffers and schools and in a sense that makes school impossible. And it's a kind of education has to do with, with resist what makes education impossible and creates the conditions so that others, our students and everyone else might be able to have the conditions she deserves to experience his the time of play, the time of art, the time of love, the time of a human life in the end. I think that's a really nice place to end on, this idea of love as an act of resistance. So that's what I want to take away from this. And I just want to thank you so much for being on the show, Walter. And I hope that everybody listening tries to subvert these models in their own lives, just tries to think about play and love and, and hope. And yeah, that's what we can hope from this conversation. So thanks again. Thank you so much. And yeah, that's a nice way to finish with Paulo Freire hoping. And maybe today that things look so difficult, at least here, 
maybe we need more than ever to hope and to resist and to dream. More than ever, yeah. There you go, more than ever. <laughs>